Super Talk Mississippi media production. You're listening to Sports Talk Mississippi On Demand, presented by Pearl River Resort. Escape to Choctaw, Mississippi and enjoy world-class gaming, the Dancing Rabbit Golf Club, and Geyser Falls Water Park. Escape to Pearl River Resort. to you on Super Talk Mississippi, streaming online at supertalk.fm. Thanks for being with us. The C Spire text line is open. That number is 601-879-4395. 601-879-4395. At C Spire, they're not just saying they care, they're taking action to show it through COVID-19 and every day from free wireless data for educational websites to connecting businesses with the tools to work from home Learn more at cspire.com slash cspirecares. Um, Borky, what's up? What did, what did you hear from the uh, governor that we need to reiterate? Uh, it sounds like it's uh, it's good that they're doing these, but it sounds like it's kind of more of the same. Uh, just continue to practice your social distancing. They were asking questions about uh, the availability of testing and whether or not we're approaching uh, a concern level of uh, the amount of hospital beds we have. Sounds like we are in pretty good shape. But, um, yeah, it's just more of the same. Just practice your social distancing. Don't go out unless you have to. Wash your hands. Do all of the uh, the things that we've been telling you over the last few days. And uh, that's really about it. And I think a little encouraging, kind of listening to the model that they used in terms of, you know, we mentioned yesterday when we were kind of wrapping up after the uh, the governor's press conference, uh, this overflow plan that they have in place where they'll use Camp Shelby and can use a couple of hundred uh, hospital beds in that scenario, excuse me, in that scenario, but also looking at opening another 200 bed facility somewhere in North Mississippi. But the need or the projection for using those facilities was based on 150% of what they thought surge capacity was going to be. And so if you don't go over what you think the capacity is, or if the numbers end up being better than we think right now, then you don't have to use those facilities at all, which is certainly ideal. That that would be best-case scenario, at least I would think. Yeah, one of the few times where you hope that people wasted their time by doing something. Yes. Uh, did you guys see the story earlier today from uh, Bill Gates, the founder of Microsoft, who is, you know, depending on when you look, the second or third or fourth richest person in the world. I think, generally speaking, the second richest person in the world now uh, behind Jeff Bezos. And he and the Gates Family Foundation, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, are going to fund manufacturing facilities for the seven most promising vaccines for fixing coronavirus. I say for fixing, you, you understand, for, for curing or treating coronavirus. They're going to build and fund 
seven manufacturing facilities and all the testing that needs to be done. And his quote in the story was, certainly we understand that at best two of these will ever make it to market, will be effective. And it'll cost us a few billion dollars in uh, construction costs and whatnot just to get these up and running. But that's a risk worth taking right now. <laughs> it, it's an incredible flex. and I don't mean it in a negative way. It's just imagine uh, having that amount of money where, yeah, I mean, you know, it's a few billion dollars, but we got to do what we got to do here. And it's, I mean... That kind of selfless stuff that uh, that you like to see nowadays. But how brilliant is that? I mean, seven factories, or whatever you want to call them, that will work on the same thing in parallel, and you'll just eliminate the ones that don't work. So instead of, here's one, test it, ah, oh, it doesn't work, all right, got to move on to the next one. I mean, he has saved months by doing this. It's incredible. Yeah, and, and still says probably 18 months is a reasonable timeline or a reasonable target for getting a vaccine to market, which is a little scary. I mean, right, it's scary in that you can't help but wonder, you know, do we get another outbreak? Is there another surge in these number of cases when we get to the fall or this time next year? You certainly hope that, um, I don't know, when it's all said and done, they're able to get to a vaccine a little bit, uh, a little bit faster. Anyway. We're glad to have you along. Sports Talk Mississippi, that's your uh, kind of coronavirus update for the uh, day as we get started. We're going to carry you all the way until uh, 3.30. Anticipated that the uh, press conference was going to go a little bit longer, but that is okay. That gives us plenty of time to dive into Jeff Passan's story that uh, came out last night at ESPN.com. And then also look at the uh, response. Rippy, you sent this uh, to Borky and to me, and I guess to Haydad as well last night. Uh, introduce it for us. This uh, this story and kind of kind of lay out what we're talking about uh, from Jeff Passan. Well, you just hear all this talk, like whether it's NBA, uh, MLB, I guess hockey to some degree. I saw they were exploring some option in North Dakota, but like a bubble, biodome, those type of buzzwords. And this would basically have. Uh, MLB teams play at 10 spring training facilities, and I'm pretty sure, I can't remember, I'm pretty sure it mentioned the D-backs stadium as well. I would guess that's the case. Yeah, it did. Uh, over four months, over basically four-month season, seven-inning doubleheaders have also been thrown out there, but they would basically live in isolation uh, for four months in Arizona in the summer and play an MLB season in empty spring training facilities, which is... uh. Certainly interesting, because I guess what, on a normal Major League Baseball day, you need 15 parks, right? Uh, Like if all 30 teams are in action? Yeah, Yeah, I mean, you probably don't have, what, Friday, Saturday, Sunday is really when you have all 30 teams playing, and then you have off days that are kind of staggered otherwise? Um, usually, it's well, in usually, theory, could it off use... day, it's usually a Monday or a Thursday. So Tuesday, Wednesday is a pretty full schedule about ninety nine percent of the time for most club. I mean, for okay. for the MLB, most days instead of having fifteen. Days, sorry. Oh, sorry. I was just saying travel days most of the time Monday, Thursday, if you get one. But instead of having fifteen parks in this case, wouldn't you really? I mean, need seven and a half because you could play two games a day per park. Oh yeah, no. I, I I think I don't think that's going to keep them from doing this. I was just kind of thinking out loud as I was going back through the story, but I just found it interesting. I uh, 
not to be on the negative side, it does seem logistically pretty hard to see through, but just the fact that they're encouraged in or I guess encouraged enough by something to at least throw this idea for a May return, probably ambitious, but I guess I can only view it as an ostensibly like good sign, I would think. Yeah. I kind of lean in that direction. However, maybe a little bit less of a good sign if we're talking about playing the entire Major League Baseball season without fans? Yeah, and as you pointed out a couple of day, uh, weeks ago on the show that I'm pretty like the MLB also relies on like, you know, in the gate ticket sales revenue whatever you want to term it more so than any other sport so it's probably not ideal but the thing i keep weighing here and for people who keep shooting it down is like ludicrous and ridiculous like it's almost like they're viewing this through the prism of a normal time to where like oh they're just going to do this and of course that wouldn't be ideal normally but when the other option is not having a season wouldn't you lean towards doing something like this i feel like people don't really view it properly like of course they don't want to do this but it's something they feel like they pretty much need and close to have to do barring just completely flying in the face of public health the other thing to remember and people don't don't say this enough this is people's job like if you're a baseball player and you're under contract that is your job our job takes us places, and it doesn't take us places for a long time, but we spend a week in Hoover in, in May, and whether we want to do that or not, that's what work dictates we have to do. And if work sure. dictates, hey, you're going to have to go to Arizona, what's your other option? I'm going to turn down the million dollar a year or however much contract that I get? No, you're going to go to Arizona and play baseball. That's a great point. I've seen so many people say, well, the players will never go for this four months away from their family. Well, it it's going to come down to it's either you do this or you don't get paid. And if you're okay not getting paid, I mean, con- congrats to you. But if for some reason Super Talk called me and said, Michael, you have to go this place and you have to leave your family for four months or we won't pay you for those four months, guess what I'm doing? Yeah. And 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 just to wait until you get a pullout couch at the uh, Embassy Suites in Hoover, then you might double double <laughs> check on that. But <laughs> well, the other thing to remember is this: like, if 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 Super Talk said that to you, Michael, and you didn't really want to do it, there are avenues for you to like. Well, I might might look for another job. What is a major league baseball player going to decide? I'm going to you know go you know sell insurance instead of make you know ten million dollars a year. No, they're going to show up in Arizona. I think there are a couple of things at play here. And and to just kind of take this example one step farther, um, to, to kind of stay exactly where we are, I mean, my work with ESPN would be an example. So so this is simple enough, hosting a radio show, because, you know, we're, we're at home and you're at home every night and you get to have dinner with your kids and, you know, maybe you go cover a ball game on the weekend or a couple of ball games on the weekend. But generally speaking, the travel is not over the top. But it's a different story for me with, you know, 40 or 45 basketball and baseball and sometimes football games kind of sprinkled in throughout the year. I got to get on an airplane. So I got to drive to Memphis and get on an airplane and fly somewhere and spend the night, sometimes spend a couple of nights and then come back home. And to your point, that's the being away from my kids. And if it's 40 events over the course of nine months, that's probably, you know, 50, 60, 70 nights away from home throughout the course of the year. I, I could not do that, and ESPN could not pay me. I mean, th- that's that's kind of how it works, right? I mean, I can choose to do that job or not do that job. Here, though, to me, is where 
we sometimes get wrapped up in the professional athletes make these obscene amounts of money and shut up, quit being a crybaby, you make $20 million a year. The reality is there's a really small percentage of players that make $20 million a year or $10 million a year. Rippy, you may have access to the numbers. I, I don't, but my guess would be there are far more players making league minimum or less than a million dollars a year than there are players making $10 million or more per year in Major League Baseball. Yeah, and just to put that in perspective, I believe the league minimum for 2020 in the MLB was a shade over 560, I think. Okay, so 563-500 is what it is. But yeah, which, which no, by the way is a great living. I mean, I'm not I, I'm not no, yeah, but you're making right. light of that at all. Well, and particularly when you talk about arbitration and what it actually takes to get through free agency, uh it's kind of hard to make money quick uh being a major league baseball player. Like you kind of get rewarded if you're a top draft pick with the signing bonus and all of that, and then it's a while before you see another um but is it fair to say it's another before you see another life-changing payday? I mean, I guess that's not completely fair. But it's spot on. Some numbers for you. Uh, so there are 750 Major League Baseball players. Uh, 482 of them have a million-dollar salary or more. Okay, so a little over half. Well, maybe that may be what 60 percent. 65%? Yeah. And to your point, look, I would love a million-dollar salary. My life would be very, very different. But So you, your your salary says million dollars. And then cut that in half thanks to the government. Then you got to pay your agent. It starts to not be as much money. And sometimes you can't go a year without that. I mean, a million dollars sounds great, but go a year without making that money. You've got bills to pay still. And, and uh, yeah, that, that's a good point. And, and please, let's be careful uh, as we have this conversation. We're not going to get caught up in the idea of, oh, these guys are, are in the welfare line. Uh, that's not what we're saying. No. The, the point is the amount of money that you become accustomed to having probably dictates how you live. If you make... $500,000 a year, then you probably have a house that is significantly more expensive than if you made $50,000 a year. And maybe you've got a higher car payment. And, you know, maybe your, your expenses, generally speaking, unless you're exceptional at saving and planning ahead and, you know, getting ready for rainy days and all those things, your expenses are based on the amount of money you make. And so nobody feels sorry for the guy who has, let's say, a $750,000 to $1.5 million house, and all of a sudden he can't pay his mortgage. Nobody feels sorry for that guy. But the reality is, he bought a $1,500,000 house, or let's just say a $1,000,000 house, based on the expectation of a certain level of income that would allow him to pay his bills. And that's why if we're just circling all the way back to kind of where this conversation started, it's why these Major League Baseball players are wanting to go to work because they do have bills, and if you haven't been making two, three, five, ten, twelve million dollars a year, if you've been in that making somewhere between, you know, five hundred thousand and a million and all of, and you haven't saved and you're still relatively early in your career, you're gonna run out of money before long. 
for all of these things that you have to pay for. A buddy of mine sent me a text message said, "Was it uh, was it Patrick Ewing who had the quote that said athletes making a lot of money, but having to spend a lot of money? Maybe so. I mean, there, there, there are certain expenses that when you make lots of money, you have more money. Uh, well, I mean, you've got a lot more money yeah. going out as well. Long-winded way to say they have incentive that even though it would suck, and I've already seen people say it's a no-go, non-starter, you're not going to get these players to leave their families for four months. The, the money is incentive enough to get them to rethink that. I don't know how people can speak definitively one way or the other. Like, this is totally going to happen, or this is a non-starter. If this is the only option that they've come up with and it has uh, the the CDC's backing, like Jeff Passan's story said they do last night, yeah, uh, the players aren't going to say no when you say it's either this or you don't get paid this year. It's ceasefire text line, I travel for my job in IT and at one point was required to be gone for 30 days at a time. But I like being able to eat, and so I went. It's that simple. And the other side of this coin is it's also like, like all of what y'all said is true, but it's also not a minor inconvenience. Like I was reading something from the Houston Chronicle today um, from friend of the show Chandler Roman. He was just pointing out that like four, five, six of these dudes have like infant children and stuff, and it it would be essentially a four month road trip, I guess possibly longer. Like that's tough, but again, it's probably well worth it for most of them. But it is like that would suck, and it would be very difficult uh, for guys that have families. Yeah, I mean, I've I've got a five uh, going on six month old, and while I'm here at work, I miss things. Like the few hours I'm gone during the day, I miss like a new milestone. Four months of baby milestones would be. I mean, terrible. I, I would be miserable, but if you're telling me it's do that and get paid or don't and don't, then I would have to pick one, as terrible as it would be for me. Yeah, he well. said his first curse word on our podcast the other day. I heard it. <laughs> uh, but he – it's also, like, in terms of, like, for Think some of these military guys, families, though. It, yeah, I was just about to say that, you know, there are people who do a lot more dangerous jobs than play baseball – that are separated from their families for sometimes you know a year or so at a time. I had a neighbor mm-hmm. that lived offshore in an oil rig. He would come home for a week at a time. I I saw him lived in the house for two years four times. He would come oh. home for a few days at a time, but he well, lived but on the rig. If you were a little more social, you probably would have seen him more. <laughs> no, I mean, <laughs> I mean physically, like saw his you, truck, boy, like not. knew he was at home, but he was gone all the time because he he worked offshore on the rig, and that's what he did. Yeah. Sorry, Rippy. I think we interrupted you. Oh, no, I didn't really have a point, but like the other side of it in terms of like it it being um it being worth their while to go, it's a lot harder as a younger major league baseball player to make it. And I think the people that have made it see it cuz I remember one day, this doesn't really have much to do with it, but I remember one day the Reds had a guy named David Hernandez that was like a guy that'd been around 7, 8, 9 years, had a decent career, but he took all the rookies out one day and bought them suits. Just because, like, I like, to me, and, like, hearing him talk about it, to me, that was kind of indicative of him kind of being like, yeah, I know even when you're in the show, like, depending on what kind of contract you are, depending whether you're a 4A guy or a guy still trying to kind of make it, like, it, it's still tough and there still are bills to pay. Yeah. Yeah. Ceasefire text line is open, 601-879-4395. So part one of this conversation is this story by 
Is it Passan or Passan? I feel like it's Passan, right? Isn't that his Jeff name? Passan. Jeff Passan? Okay. Passan. Just making sure. I wanted to make sure that I was pronouncing his name correctly. So part one is the story that he wrote. Major League Baseball and its players are increasingly focused on a plan that could allow them to start the season as early as May, and it has the support of high-ranking federal public health officials. And then a whole lot more detail. Major League Baseball this morning grabbed a bucket, they filled it with cold water, and they tossed it right on top of this story, essentially doing their best Lee Corso and saying, not so fast, my friend. We have not settled on that option or develop a detailed plan, said Major League Baseball. They went on, excuse me. Sorry, I know that's not great for the radio. Uh, The quote was this, MLB has been actively considering numerous contingency plans that would allow play to commence once the public health situation has improved to the point that it is safe to do so. While we've discussed the idea of staging games at one location as one potential option, we have not settled on that option or developed a detailed plan. While we continue to interact regularly with governmental and public health officials, we have not sought or received approval of any plan from federal, state, and local officials or the Players Association. And then there's a little bit more about health and public safety and making sure everybody's okay. So what does that mean? Does that mean that somebody leaked this to Jeff Passan before anybody at Major League Baseball wanted the public to know about it? Or that genuinely, yes, this is an idea that's on the table, but it's just that at this point. It felt like there was a lot of detail in Jeff Passan's story for this to be just, oh yeah, we've kind of kicked around some ideas. Truth probably falling somewhere in the middle. Yeah, I don't think, though, you do see this sometimes with leagues where they kind of leak something out there to gauge, like, the public interest or, like, the reaction. But I don't think this was that, because Cowherd was talking about this earlier today and brought up a pretty good point. This wasn't his exact point, but kind of going off of it is whoever does kind of come back is going to fly in the face of the doom and gloom Twitterverse. Like, it's probably, whatever leak starts back up first, there's going to be criticism because there's just a certain faction of people that enjoy being miserable. So in this instance, like, I wouldn't see how this is one of those things where they're kind of pushing it out there to gauge interest, because they had to have known no matter what, there's going to be pushback to it. Anything that is not negative that makes its rounds on social media gets ripped apart. Anything. Uh, from not just like random people, because random people say stupid things online all the time, but the second the story broke, I mean, a baseball writer from The Athletic just immediately, nope, we just found that coronavirus is in cats, so yeah, they're going to play baseball in May, just completely dismissed it. Probably didn't even open the link to the story before he just, nope, not happening, done, move on. And it, like, I just, I wonder Who was that? Who did that? Andy McCullough, great writer, but the tweet didn't make any sense. Like, it was one of those things where I'm going to sound smart, but doesn't actually mean anything. I mean, in the story, it says this has the backing from the CDC. Are you telling me, Mr. Sports Writer, that you know more about viruses and the safety of this plan than somebody at the CDC? Stop. I, I, I'm seriously considering just getting off getting offline for a while because... But- that approach is bringing me down. It's also, why would you not want that? Can you imagine if something happened here and we couldn't do the radio show and then our bosses one day were like, hey, here's a plan. We're going to go underground and do the show underground. And we were all like, ha, not happening. 
Like yeah. I can't, I can't put myself in that frame of mind. Like, so I can't imagine that mindset. Right. And so you works at the athletic. The athletic has subscribers, no advertisers, just subscribers. What happens if we don't get baseball for a year? You think there's going to be a demand for for you? No. So you will probably lose your job. It's like they're actively rooting for their job not to exist anymore. Like, if we don't have sports for 18 months, what what does Super Talk need me for? That's all I do. So I want them to come back as much as possible because my bills get paid because of it. There's also a reason they went all in on Major League Baseball and professional sports kind of being that particular company's bread and butter. You would think they would welcome this. Yeah, let's rewind to, to something at the beginning of this conversation, and this may be kind of the, the next step that we look at. It's going to, if Major League Baseball, well, hold on, we need to do this in order. There, there was something that you pointed out, Rippy, earlier about revenue and the problem that you have in terms of revenue as it goes along with Major League Baseball if you play in empty parks. So we'll get to that in a second, but... Goodness, I feel like there are layers to this. There's a ton of them. But but I, I, I still don't feel like we answered the question that I threw out a second ago. Is this something where someone told Jeff Passan, this is what we're working on, and he went with it? Because if you read that story, that was not a... I mean, Borky put it in four paragraphs here and summarized it. It was a 15-minute read while you sit and work on a cup of coffee at the breakfast table. That's how it was for me this morning. Yep. And there was a ton of detail in there. That, to me, says this is what Major Major League Baseball is trying to do. They just weren't ready for you to know about it yet. We'll continue with this and a whole lot more Sports Talk Mississippi streaming at supertalk.fm with you on this Tuesday afternoon, the 7th of April. Back with you, Sports Talk Mississippi, streaming at supertalk.fm. I hope you had a good Monday night. When the uh, when the show finished yesterday, I immediately uh, I went and lit the grill and turned the television on the back porch. And they were doing the Peyton's Places series, so there were two of those. So I had to get to 7 o'clock. And at 7 o'clock, I heard Mike Tirico's voice. And it was the aerial shot of the Louisiana Superdome. Mercedes-Benz Superdome now, at the time, Louisiana Superdome. They re-aired the first game back in the Dome. And when the captains walked out on the field, I looked at my television, I went, Dulamis! <laughs> Deuce McAllister joins us on the Farm Bureau phone line. Check out favorites.com and go with the home team, Mississippi Farm Bureau. Deuce, i I got to be honest with you. I got a little emotional watching that game last night, at least early. The national anthem, Steve Gleason blocking the punt, all the energy in the building, President Bush, 41 there on the field for the coin toss. Did you have any of those same emotions last night? I definitely did. And, um, you know, it was odd just seeing it because 
I have never seen. That was my first time watching the complete broadcast or the broadcast view. Now, I've watched the coaches' film, which obviously there's no talking, you know, and even the radio version, there's no talking. We skip through, we watch it, you go on to the next game. But that was my first time seeing everything else around it. So it was pretty, pretty interesting to see. Was that the beginning of the Superdome becoming what it is today in terms of home field advantage? 100%. I remember my first four years uh, playing in New Orleans, and, you know, we used to have to get extensions to try to get it where the, there wasn't a blackout. Now, the NFL right. has changed a lot of rules now, and, you know, unless you're old school, a lot of the younger fans, they don't even know, what do you mean there's a blackout? Well, you had to sell a certain amount of tickets, and if you didn't, that game was blacked out locally to that region, and so um, I can remember we used to have to get extensions, you know, the cutoff year was one, I think it was Wednesday, we used to have to get extensions to Friday, and you would have local businesses that would buy up the remaining amount of tickets that you needed to be able to get over that threshold to for it to be you know counted as a sellout and and then you could uh, watch it on local television and you know to have the commitment not only from New Orleans I think you know a lot of people know this but it wasn't just the city of New Orleans it was the entire region the Gulf Coast region that supported us as a team as an organization as a franchise and so many people said yes I want to be a part of bringing New Orleans back and this is one step of doing that and so I think that's where it really set the foundation for the organization to be you know who who they are what they are today what do you remember specifically about that game I'll never forget really the Friday before the practice and watching just you know, the video that Coach Payton showed us um, that Sunday night and, you know, the emotions that you felt uh, just that Friday night, just walking into that Superdome and, and seeing it actually with my eyes. And it wasn't the visuals that you had from when we were in the hotel in San Antonio and, you know, just the negative or the bad things that you knew and you saw that happened. You know, it was it was redone. And I can remember playing on that field where it was basically – concrete with carpet on top and to have this new side put down that was squishy and soft it, it, it was just amazing to see and so you just have these rush of emotions and you hear that national anthem being played and you know you see the tears of those fans and from a player's perspective you know you're emotional as well but you know you have to go out there and compete so uh it was it was pretty unique I don't know that I've ever asked you about it, Deuce. You obviously played in Tiger Stadium at LSU when you were at Ole Miss, but the the season before, so after Katrina, when you guys are out of the dome and all the construction is taking place, how strange a, a feeling was that playing the games in Baton Rouge with you know a, a stadium that was maybe a quarter of the way full? About twenty five thousand. <laughs> it was about twenty five thousand full. And I think one of the the weirdest things as well, our first game, home game, was actually in New York. You know, it was against the Giants. That was our first home game. It was designated as a New York game, uh, but we were the home team. And to have to play three games in San San Antonio that year and then the rest of the home games were in Baton Rouge, you felt like vagabonds. I mean, because you definitely didn't have a home. And so, you know, for 16 games that year, we felt like we were always the road team, and so it was just different. What kind of a teammate was Joe Horn? We, we talked to Joe. We we did a show last year um, 
at uh, Pearl River Resort at the uh, the sports book. And Joe and some of his buddies were there. They were playing golf, and he came and, and spent some time with uh, with us on the radio. Really interesting guy. What kind of a teammate was he? What you got, Dan, was what you got out on that, uh, <laughs> out on that field. He was always going to be a competitor. He was going to compete. Whatever he had in his bucket, he was going to empty it. But the one thing Joe Horn was going to do was talk. And he didn't mind talking to the biggest guy out there, the, the you know, the widest guy. Sometimes, you know, he would be lined up against the fastest guy. But he was always going to talk. And so for me, I wouldn't a guy that wanted to talk. I just wanted to go and play. But Joe would get all these other guys riled up on the other side, and they're ready to fight, and then he he, he would go and hide behind the, the, the bigger guys. I mean, it's like, Joe, what are you doing? You know, leave, leave that guy alone. Let's go, let's go play. And, you know, and he, he, he was a heck of a competitor, though. I mean, he wanted to compete, and he was going to go do that, but he was going to talk. In some ways, it feels like we're living in the golden age of the wide receiver, and and maybe that's not altogether. Um, it's not altogether true. I mean, obviously Jerry Rice, arguably the best that's ever played, and you've had tons and tons of players. If Marquez Colston were playing at his prime right now, would he be in the same category as the top four or five receivers that we see in the NFL today? I would love for him to talk. Now, if he went out and talked like Joe did, it wouldn't be a travesty that Colston never made a Pro Bowl. I mean, uh, Marcus Colston never made an all-pro team. For some, a lot of the problem, though, you talk about it, you look at the receivers that you're talking about that he was going up against, you know, that that, that Megatron uh, being one of them. You know, you, you, you yeah. talk about Randy Moss, you talk about Chad Johnson. That was the era that Marcus Colston was caught up in, but he just worked I mean, and he wasn't going to say a lot. He was going to go out there. He wasn't going to be flamboyant. You know, to see him spike the ball last night, that was a play that you, you, you forgot because it wasn't something that he did. You know, he caught caught the ball, particularly on the touchdown. He would tap his chest, and he would look up, point up in the sky. I mean, outside of that, he just worked. Give me one thought on, on Steve Gleason because the, the aftermath of the block, you, you see the block – and the recovery in the end zone, and it takes a minute for the the TV camera to find him. But you get that shot of him kind of running through the end zone and back, and he's got his arms completely extended out to the side, and then a teammate comes and hugs him, and everybody's jumping around. Give me kind of a a, a Steve Gleason nugget, because that's a story, obviously, that that has been told over and over since then, But, but what kind of a teammate he was and what kind of a player he was. He was a relentless, and we call him a warrior. I mean, because when you look at Steve, Steve's not a big guy. You know, and think uh, back, back, he's a Pac-12 guy. He's out from West Coast, Washington. And so, you know, it, it was, uh, I think it was Washington State. I know he'll get me if I mess it up, but I think it was Washington State. And the interesting thing about Steve was he was an all-conference linebacker. But, I mean, to be his size, he wasn't going to be a linebacker in the NFL. So he was a safety. And then even Steve would tell you, if I'm going in the game as a safety, we're in trouble. You know, and so that was not his forte. <laughs> but he was able to carve out uh, 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 something that he knew he could do, and that was special teams. And this is even before, you know, you have a lot of the rules as far as uh, the three-man wedge. Steve was our wedge buster. He was going to go down and throw his body around. And you know, Steve was outweighed almost by 150 pounds. You know, and if it was a three-man wedge, they probably had Steve by 300 pounds, if not more. He was going to be the guy that breaks it up. And so he was 
was the man that kind of fast Freddie or Fred McAfee handed the baton to for the Saints to go and be that special team. He was he was an undrafted guy. He was a guy that was cut. You know, his practice squad had to kind of earn his way up. But once he found that role. He was a guy that was relentless and basically a captain for us. And, you know, the fight that he has been able to show since he has been diagnosed with ALS has just been phenomenal. Just one of the most unfair diseases that is uh, that is out there. His story is remarkable and is an inspiration even today. You're an inspiration too, though, Deuce, and uh, it's always fun to visit with you. Appreciate you kind of reliving that particular game with us this afternoon uh, continued health and safety to you and your family, and uh, look forward to visiting with you soon, my friend. No problem. Thank you so much, and you you be safe as well. That's Deuce McAllister with us on the Farm Bureau phone line. Check out favorites.com and go with the home team. I'm serious when I said there was like this wave of emotion, and at one point my eyes kind of welled up with tears. And, and I don't know if it was, hey, this is football, or if it was the emotion of that game, but it was spectacular last night getting to relive that with Monday Night Football in April. Sports Talk Mississippi. We'll be right back with you. Back with you, Sports Talk Mississippi, streaming at supertalk.fm. Richard Cross, Michael Borky, Brian Haydad, and Brian Scott Rippian. Appreciate Deuce McAllister joining us. On the Farm Bureau phone line, check out favorites.com and go with the home team, Mississippi Farm Bureau. Obviously, uh, a time that's got some uncertainty right now. One thing you can be certain of is the service that you will get from your local Mississippi Farm Bureau agent. If you go to that website, favorites.com, you go there, all you got to do is type in your zip code. So for me, it's 38655. That's the zip code for Oxford. And then I click on the button that says get a quote, and it redirects me to a page where I can either get a quote on auto insurance, get a quote on home insurance, or you can bundle those coverages, your auto and property insurance together into one and save. If you're like me, then you'll be dealing with someone that you already know in your local market. Maybe it's somebody you went to high school with. Maybe it's somebody you go to church with or you see at the ballpark or you bump into at the grocery store, certainly at a socially safe distance. Uh, but you're dealing with somebody who knows what you need. And it's really simple. When you're dealing with somebody that you know, you've probably got their cell phone number. And if something happens, you just give them a call or you shoot them a text and you say, hey, what do I need to do about this? Hey, I'm going to get a new vehicle today. Sure, we'll get your coverage in place. Hey, had a limb fall on my truck in my driveway last night. All right, we'll get a claim started. It's simple because you're dealing, again, with people that you know, it's not something where you've got to have some adjuster that you've never heard of calling you on a phone connection that's no good. It's Mississippi people. All 82 counties have local Mississippi Farm Bureau agents. Check out favorites.com and go with the home team, Mississippi Farm Bureau. Uh, I mentioned that a second ago, the, the kind of emotional component of watching that game last night. You guys know that I'm not a diehard Saints fan. I like the Saints. I'm happy for the Saints to do well, but the Saints have never really been my team. And yet watching that last night had this kind of wave of emotion come over me to the point, Michael, that you'll be uh, you'll appreciate this. I, I said to Ava Montgomery, my oldest daughter, you think we should become full-time Saints fans? And she said, Mm, I don't know. I was just thinking, <laughs> hey, we can go to a game once a year, a couple of games a year. 
and have a, a semi-local team. Now, I'm wondering, you know, you, you guys have laughed at me and kind of made fun of me for being a Yankees fan. And I've said, well, my defense is, yes, I've become a Yankees fan, but not in, like, Yankees dynasty time. So I wonder if this would be a bad time to kind of jump on the Saints bandwagon full-time. Yeah, probably. You're also closer to Nashville. So if you're looking for a a local option, you've got a a more local one. But, man, it's not jumping on a bandwagon. You have the Mississippi defense. You're friends with Deuce, too. Yeah. I mean, you just talk to him often on the radio. The people you work with, except for Rippy, but he doesn't count, are are Saints fans. And, I mean... (laughs) People in Jackson and South, I mean, it's Saints country around here. I mean, when sure. football comes back, we'll go to the bar every Sunday, and it's packed with Saints fans. And we'll we'll change it up. We don't go to the same one every week, and every bar's the same. Well, you yeah, know I actually I watched this as, uh, as well last night, and I'm not a Saints fan either. I do remember watching this as a kid, though, and like rooting for the Saints that night just because I didn't obviously grasp the full, when I guess I was seven or eight at that point. Uh, how old were you, hey, Dad? But anyway, I was sitting there, <laughs> and I didn't really, like, I didn't really grasp the full moment. But I thought it was cool. And then I don't even think the people that, that like, I don't think Gleason or anyone in that building that night probably grasped like how legendary that night and that play in particular would kind of become. Like you knew it was a special thing. I, the broadcast made that clear. But I did have some observations. One outside of that play, it was kind of a boring game. Like Vic was awful. Uh, or the defense was good, but yeah. no, yeah, I mean that 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 too. But like, there just wasn't like a ton of action in it. Uh, two, Kornheiser kind of stunk on that broadcast. Like he kept trying to hammer a point home that you clearly got. I don't know if anyone else had that observation. I don't ever remember Tony Kornheiser being on Monday Night Football broadcast, but uh, I didn't think that was his strongest performance. Tariko and uh, was it Theismann? Yeah, it was Joe Theismann. They were pretty good. I thought Kornheiser made, like, gave that uh, that booth a weird dynamic. And then just seeing Spike Lee wearing some Ralph Lauren stuff in 06 was an interesting. In the booth was uh, was certainly interesting. I saw a great um, tweet talking about being old. That uh, the, the Saints scored two touchdowns in the quarter, and they said on the broadcast, first time in eight years that they had sco- scored two touchdowns in one quarter. And so the tweet was, I can't believe it took eight years to score two touchdowns in one quarter. I also can't believe that eight years ago on this broadcast was 1998. It also made me remember Jarius Norwood. Yeah. You realize how many different people Mike Tirico, who is absolutely the pro's pro, worked with on Monday Night Football? I mean, you had the, the little... Dennis Miller time frame. Yeah. Tony Kornheiser. It's like the drummer for Spinal Tap. They just keep changing him out. I forgot that Joe Theismann was paired up with him for a while until I saw that last night. And then ultimately you got to Tariko and Gruden, and that was pretty good. Sports Talk Mississippi, streaming at supertalk.fm. We'll take a timeout and be right back with the 4 o'clock hour. With you, Sports Talk Mississippi, streaming online at supertalk.fm. Thanks for being with us. Richard Cross and Michael Borkey, Brian Haydad, and Brian Scott Rippey. You can connect with us on the Seaspire text line, 601 879 4395. 601 
879-4395. That is the number for the C Spire text line. C Spire's been busy. They are partnering with UMMC to help Mississippi cancel COVID-19. For a limited time, COVID-19 screenings are free through the C Spire Health app for anyone in Mississippi with fever, respiratory issues, or other symptoms of the disease. Learn more online at cspirehealth.com. Uh, C Spire text line, who gave Rippy an Adderall today? I liked him better when he spoke, only when spoken to. <laughs> I can't please everyone between the paid-by-the-word jokes and then this guy accusing me of uh, ingesting Adderall. Just can't please everyone around here. Yeah. I don't know. We've been working really hard to get more out of Rippy, and so I'm not going to be the one other than to just uh, read a, um, you know, read a text when it's funny, but don't stop that uh, at all. Um, Are you encouraging me to take Adderall? No, just to talk more. Got it. Whatever, uh, whatever it takes for that to happen. All right, let me, uh, let me, let's go to this email from Mississippi State Athletics Communications has just come out, and Mississippi State has made a statement about Mike Leach's tweet from. Good grief. When was that? Friday? The end of no, last week? Uh, yeah, it was Wednesday. When did it happen? Wednesday of last week. Oh. Okay. Well, we've all talked about not being able to remember what day it is. So, yeah. It was the Athletics other day. Director John... Yeah, the other day. Athletics Director John Cohen issued the following statement regarding the recent controversial tweet by Mississippi State head football coach Mike Leach. Quote, No matter the context, for many Americans, the image of a noose is never appropriate, and that's particularly true in the South and in Mississippi. Mississippi State University was disappointed in the use of such an image in a tweet by Coach Mike Leach. He removed the tweet and issued a public apology. The university is confident that Coach Leach is moving quickly and sincerely past this unintended misstep and will provide the leadership for our student-athletes and excitement for our football program that our fans deserve and that our students and alumni will be proud to support. Close quote. Cohen did say that there is a plan in place for Coach Leach to participate in additional listening sessions with students, alumni, and community groups to provide the coach with opportunities To expand his cultural awareness of Mississippi, one of those opportunities will include a guided visit to the two museums, the Museum of Mississippi History and the Mississippi Civil Rights Museum in Jackson, as soon as restrictions from current public health crises will allow. Oh, how the turntables on the listening session deal. Oh, man. Yeah, you... you, uh... The, is a statement the, necessary here? I'm asking. I don't really have a stance one way or another. It seems to fall right in the middle. It, like, are you drawing more attention to yeah, it? Because it was almost it, a week ago. Should have done it like Friday, right? It, it, I don't it, know. It, I don't know. If, I would say that uh, a statement was probably necessary because when you have as many people riled up as this, this as you have, you need to you know let people know that you hear their complaints and you hear what they're saying. Uh, I, I think you know, you know. If I agree, that it probably should have come a little sooner. 
but at the same time, they had to say something. Um, you know, this happened in real time. This email just came in real th- real time, and I am attempting to kind of gather my thoughts and not say something that I don't want either truly believe or to regret later. Not that I intend to say anything controversial. I just... I mean, it's almost like we're saying he apologized, he understands it's a big deal, we've got a little bit of a punishment in place, he's going to have to go see some museums. I mean, I... I don't... I mean, what am I un- missing here? Unintended missteps are probably fair, pretty fair act, like summation of what it was, right? Because like, that's a that's a pretty well crafted phrase, right there. Yeah, he was trying to make a quarantine joke. Like, of course, you can't do like news jokes pretty much anywhere, but Mississippi in particular. But like, that's obviously not what he was getting at when making the right. The right. joke, reference, whatever. Also, Leach doesn't seem like a guy where you'd have to make him visit museums. Yeah, if anything, yeah, I mean, he'll I, have I a would... blast at those two places. Yeah. I, I was thinking that he might welcome the opportunity to go to a museum. I don't know if he's a guy that loves being told, you're going to do this for the optics. Eh. For, I mean, okay. He's got to be smart enough to know he needs to do something. Yeah. No, I'm with you. Far be it from me to be the guy to defend the head football coach at Mississippi State or defend Mississippi State. I mean, whatever. But if you said, hey, Richard, Make a list of the 130 or so college football coaches that coach at the Division I level, or a list of the 60-ish Power 5 football coaches in America, and order them based on who you think is the most racist to who you think is the least racist. And I use that intentionally because I think inherently racism exists in everybody. To to varying degrees. But regardless of the color of your skin, inherently racism exists. You may disagree with that, and that's fine. But if you just said, hey, Put the put the order from the least racist to the most racist football coach. Mike Leach would be way, way, way near the bottom on the list that I would put together. This is to obviously me, I'm not making a list like that, and this is a completely ridiculous activity. I was just kind of using that as an illustration to say, never have I heard something that Mike Leach said or thought about something Mike Leach said and thought, you know what? That guy's a racist. Yeah. Never. 
this is just sort of like old people on Facebook syndrome for me. It's just he saw a funny meme, already thought perceived was a funny meme, and he decided to, you know, just put it out there. And that's that's what happened. Somebody made a good point that I think maybe maybe, maybe Rippy, did you say this about you know maybe a a five million dollar a head year head coach in the SEC really shouldn't be in, uh, engaging in meme culture? <laughs> I, I I did not because I'm not going to tell anyone else to do is what their social media or on their own time. But that is an interesting uh, way to I mean, phrase yeah, it. It's like it's just. But go ahead. I mean, this is. I mean, both like, you can see both sides here because on the other side of things, like Absolutely. what are you? Like, who are you to, like, who, you, not anyone in particular, to kind of tell a kid from Mississippi what and what should not, like, make him feel uncomfortable or offend him? It's just kind of one of those things where it was unintended, but you also get the other side of it to some degree. Right. Maybe I'm mixing the point here. Maybe this statement isn't for me, it isn't for you, it isn't for... That's a better question. Who is this statement for? Recruits. It's it's for recruits. It's for and it's for pe- people who were people who were genuinely offended, and it's for people who are in the the business of being offended. Uh, the the fa- the false outrage people who are you know jumping on board with this because they see a chance to get clicks, and they'll get they'll get more out of this. They'll get more clicks out of this by saying that. You know, oh, he didn't mean it, blah, blah, blah. This is just typical, whatever. They should fire him. People whose opinions don't hold any weight at Mississippi State, or Ole Miss for that matter, if something like this were to happen up there. Does this put the conversation to bed? Or does it probably not? Until we get some real football, probably not, but. I know that MSU is, is moving past it. I know that Leach has met with players, and the, the, the team is moving past it. I don't know that the uh, the rest of the world will. Sports Talk Mississippi, streaming at supertalk.fm. We will be right back. Back with you on Super Talk Mississippi at Sport Talk uh, Sports Talk Mississippi Tuesday afternoon, the seventh of April. Thanks for being with us. Got the whole crew today. Brian Haydad's in Starkville, Rippy in Oxford, Borky in Jackson. I'm in Oxford as well. Ceasefire text line is open 601 601-879-4395. 601-879-4395. At Ceasefire, they're not just saying they care, they're taking action to show it through COVID-19 and every day from free wireless data for educational websites to connecting businesses with the tools to work from home. Learn more at cspire.com slash cspirecares. Some of your texts on Mike Leach. I think Leach is so not racist, that's why he posted the cartoon. He doesn't even think about stuff like that. His mind wasn't wired to think that way. That's from John in Hattiesburg. Uh, Jason says, seems like the Leach comment was a few months ago. Of course the statement was necessary. That was as nice of a butt-chewing as I've ever heard. I mean, is it wrong for I mean, me I to think that... I guess that does... 
No, I'm sorry, Bork. Yeah, I don't want to interrupt your, your train of thought there. I guess it does kind of function as a public reprimand. It does. But am I wrong for thinking they didn't have to do this today? Like, since It feels like it, you're creating the news cycle again, as small as it may be today. And I'm sure there's going to be some articles on CBS and ESPN that are updated with Mississippi State statement. But it's something that people weren't talking about anymore. And even though this is a statement, I think, for recruits and for players, for, for optics, um, this isn't going to change much releasing this statement today. So all you're doing is bringing this back up, right? I, I'm just I'm surprised that when you're this far out, you want to keep people talking about it. We weren't going to talk about it today. was not in the plan. I spent all day on the plan. Wasn't planning on talking about Mike Leach today. But since they released a statement on it, here we are again talking about Mike Leach tweeting an image of a noose. And it's going to be the same elsewhere because, I don't know if you've noticed, there's no sports news right now. So they're creating, even though it may be a small one, yet another news cycle where people were talking about or will be talking about a, a negative tweet from your head football coach. If you were going to do a statement, do it Friday at 5 o'clock, but now Tuesday at 4, I don't see why now. It's too late. Shouldn't have done it. Yeah. Yeah, because six days ago in this current age we live in, like microwave society, very brief news cycle, it was like three weeks ago, it feels like almost. Yeah. Um, See, here we go. go I mean, you've got AL.com. You've got Matt Hinton from CBS. Now, they're tweeting about it again. Here it is. You created something you didn't have to. Sure. I'm just going to say that Jason goes on to say that it's not about being racist or not, especially for people who know him. It's about the people that don't know him. They only conflate everything Mississippi with racism. And he says, no, the statement won't be good enough. Nothing short of state firing him 12 minutes after that tweet will be good enough for people that are associating this as a head coach being a racist. I would say to some degree it's people that quote-unquote know him because he does have a uh, a previous desktop with one Daniel Walken who is taking this opportunity to <laughs> kind of make his point on Leach. So I think to some people it's mm. probably, I guess, know him semantics, but his detractors, I guess, would be uh, kind of jumping at this. Hey, Dad, there's a... I'm going to be careful how I do this. Generally speaking, when conversations of racism as it pertains to athletics or a university in the state of Mississippi come up, unfortunately for Ole Miss fans, it's usually about Ole Miss because mascots, nicknames, etc. And you fight a battle that is basically an unwinnable battle. That doesn't mean you stop fighting it, but you fight a battle that, in the eyes of most outsiders, cannot be won. This is really the first time that I can remember, and you can, you feel free to correct me if I'm wrong, I don't feel like this is something that Mississippi State has had to fight in a really, really, really long time. Nothing's coming to and, mind right off the top of my head. So, And, and I was just going to say, you know, to, to a certain degree, 
Mississippi State fans have been able to kind of sit back and snicker or chuckle or openly laugh at Ole Miss for its issues with regard to the past and history and symbolism and racism while not having to deal with those itself. And it sucks. You know? Yeah, I mean, it... Yeah, it's 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 definitely a uh, sort of a you know shoes on the other foot kind of thing for for Mississippi State. And there has been a you know through the years a lot of uh, of arrows uh, pointed at Ole Miss for these kind of things. And uh, you know this is one of the things I always say is you know when State fans or Ole Miss fans somebody gets arrested on the other team and they start making jokes. Well, just give it a week because you're you're going to have to be on the other side of this and and that's just how it that's always been in this rivalry it's you know whatever one side screws up the other side's usually pretty quick to follow uh doing the same thing so yeah you know, there'd be a lot of MSU fans especially on social media and message boards who have made a lot of comments through the years that are you know having to you know eat a little crow today yeah uh, all i know is it's no fun period it is no fun. Nah, that's, that's, you don't want to talk about this. You don't want to. You don't want your program to be associated with it. So, but it, it really, it really is something that we. I think I feel confident. I feel confident saying I know Mike Leach's intent here was not to be racist in any way, shape, or form. But because he tweeted out a meme a week later, we get we hit, there's there's statements being issued. He's going to have to make some some trips to, to around the state. He's going to have to sit down and talk to some people. Uh, people are, you know, writing. Co- it's it's incredible, you know, what one little pebble uh, can start an avalanche. It's a good point. That's a uh, that's a good point. Somebody said, "Don't forget the Jackie Sherrill incident with the steer." Was that? How is that racist? Yeah, I was going to say I, I never heard that being something that was. Tied to racism. Can we play explain it to the millennial? What is that? So before they played Texas uh, in nineteen ninety two, motivational techniques. Yeah, they they Jackie brought the team out to watch a uh, uh, a steer get or a steer is is castrated. Whatever it is before that, I guess a bull. Yeah, watch a bull get castrated on the practice field, Rippy. Yeah, so, yeah. So it was just you know like a. You see what they're getting at there. We're trying to. We're going to beat Texas, and we're going to do this to them. I don't. But, what are like they I getting I at? Hey, Dad. That Texas. You, you, the the no, idea okay. was How is that, that Jackie Sherrill. How is that related to what this is? It's not related. Yeah, That's the I don't point. know. We're like, yeah, I don't. I don't understand. I have no idea how these two things are related, but anytime you have the opportunity to revisit the uh, Jackie Sherrill. Let's castrate a bull as a motivational technique at uh, at football practice. I think it's worth retelling that story. Had you never heard that before, Rippy? I actually, so I read. I guess I guess I'd have because I, Ross Dellinger, when both of these coaches got hired, wrote a story about that, and I think he made a reference to that in there. But yeah. I guess I didn't fully. I may have glossed over that. That's like Jackie Moon wrestling a bear type of thing. Yeah. I mean, the message was, let's go and emasculate Texas on the football field. I appreciate you clearing that up. I was, yeah. They have no. (laughs) Just in case you needed me to connect the dots. 
It's better than throwing a fake funeral for yourself. Or throwing a guy off the uh, the side of the stadium or whatever, you know, throwing a uh, mannequin off. That was pretty good. That was pretty yeah. good. Yeah. See, this is more fun than, you know, stupid memes that turned into racism. Hmm. What happened to this deer? Uh, he lived a happy life, uh, eating grass and couldn't be that happy. Well, as happy as you can be <laughs> in that situation. Thousands of married men will tell you they're happy in that situation. It's okay. Was he? Um, was he still a he? Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, I have cats that have had that procedure done. I still refer to them as he. If you had them, yeah. you're a he. Well, you sure? Bruce Jenner aside. I said, there's a, there's a Jenner joke in here somewhere. <laughs> Where's JT when Sports we need Talk him? Mississippi. It's probably a good time to take a break. We'll be right back with you. Streaming online at supertalk.fm. Back with you, Sports Talk Mississippi, streaming at supertalk.fm. Thanks for being with us on this Tuesday afternoon, the 7th of April. So we were talking earlier about Monday Night Football last night, right? So you've had a lot of different Monday Night Football announcers through the years. Some of them have been great. Rippy Borky, are either of you old enough to... Have a like when you think of Monday Night Football, you think of anybody other than Mike Tirico moving forward. I mean, that's the last twelve years. Mike Tirico started in '06. That's well, probably as far back as it, I can remember. I mean, I was fourteen at the time, so any any younger than fourteen, I don't exactly remember. Uh, TV announcers, so it's just been Tarico for me. No, I remember Mike Patrick on ESPN Sunday Night Football before they switched. That's absolutely right. Sunday Night Football was Mike Patrick and Al McGuire. Paul McGuire. Paul McGuire. Not Al McGuire. Paul McGuire. And that ESPN I mean, Monday Night Football, I believe, is one of the first years of it because I believe it was. I'm, I'm now. I say I believe. I'm now looking at Wikipedia at 87 to 2005. ESPN what, for... Sunday Night Football. Does that sound right? Yes. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely right. But I mean, it was it was Mike Patrick, Paul McGuire, and Joe Theismann on yeah. Sunday Night Football. And then wasn't on TNT for a few seasons. Sorry, what? Wasn't it on just TNT what was Monday Night seasons? at that time before they switched? Like what channel? Yeah, wasn't it NBC? ABC. Oh, ABC. Excuse me. Yeah, yeah. ABC had Monday Night Football. And that's kind of what I was getting to on this deal was the Monday Night Football booth that I don't know if I'm saying I grew up with, but the you know, for the first basically 20 years of my life or at least the, you know, from my time I was like 6 to 25, 26 was Al Michaels, Frank Gifford, Dan Deerdorf. Yeah. And then some different I guess sideline reporters along the way, but I mean you had a you had a run there where it was Lynn Swan on the sidelines. Mm-hmm. Um, 
now an athletic director. Not anymore. Or was. That's right, he got fired. And Deardorff is now a regional CBS guy, right? Yes. How old is Dan Deardorff? He is 70. 70. Okay. Yeah. I was using all that as kind of a lead-in to this uncertainty with regard to Monday Night Football and what it's going to look like going forward. There's a new story out from the New York Post. And, and I love when you kind of get into the story a little bit. It says, Tessator and McFarland, talking about Joe Tessator and Booger McFarland, have not yet been informed they will not be back, though they both know ESPN has been looking for replacements. ESPN had the dream booth scenario of stealing Al Michaels from NBC and bringing in Peyton Manning. They, did, they went over 2 on that deal. ESPN has not settled on a team yet, but here are some names that are floating. ESPN has Drew Brees in its sights after he retires from the New Orleans Saints. You like that idea? I can't decide if he'd be good or not. I don't know if he has the charisma. I mean, he's like his interviews are good. He's very buttoned up and polished, but... The thing that makes Romo so good is he's got, even though it annoys people, that excitement. that He gets overly excited and people make fun of his voice scratching. He gets that into it. I've never seen Breeze in a media setting to where he, he's not just like almost robotic. He's just very polished as far as that goes. He doesn't have the charisma to me that a Manning or a Romo have to be that guy. But maybe I'm wrong. The only time I've ever seen Breeze like outside of football is that ESPN commercial where he's driving the Mardi Gras float. I thought he's funny in that, but I mean how much of that is scripted, but you know, you got to be able to pull that off too. So I think it'd be okay, you know. Maybe maybe it's just me. And, and it may just be me cuz I'm an old man. But I mean, do am I really looking for, old. you know, old. Yes, I know. Am I really just looking for this this you know excitement and, and all this from the color commentator on a football game? Just explain what happened. That's all I really want. And Tony Romo, for all his excitement and everything, why I like listening to him is he is explaining in great detail what he is seeing there and what's happening on the field. That's all I really want. And this is why Tony Kornheiser and Dennis Miller. I don't. I don't need the entertainment. Is the game not the booth? The, but Tony Romo's ability to explain complex things in a simplistic way offset the excitement. Because if he wasn't able to do that and he didn't play quarterback, like the excitement would be annoying because what's the number one thing you knock Tessator for? A four-yard gain being Texas's back. Like it's just, there's no in-between. Right. So ESPN has Drew Brees in their sights. After he retires, we assume it's going to be after this year, but maybe it's longer than that. Maybe it's two years. I don't know. We we'll have to wait and uh, and see. Apparently, they are kicking around the idea of having Steve Levy, Lewis Riddick, and Dan Orlovsky in the booth next year for Monday Night Football. Would be a ESPN good group. Has not. Dan Orlovsky's really, really good, and I think Lewis Riddick's really good on TV, and Steve Levy's. Fine. And talk about a nice bullpen session, the XFL for Levy. You don't believe that was an accident, do you? 
Um, I actually didn't even connect the dots that far. He just he did he went on Ryan Rosilla's podcast a while back and talked about how that came to be, and I didn't know he was such like a TV prodigy, but I, I don't know if it's accident or not. I'm just saying that would be a pretty decent warm up because he's not always been play by play. No, he was actually a play-by-play guy early in his career and then kind of stepped away from that to do the sports center thing for a really long time and has now, in the last few years, kind of gone back to the play-by-play piece of it in addition to sports center. I think he's talented. Um, but no, I I have... I know for a fact that Steve Levy felt like he needed reps. And that's part of the reason that he agreed to do the XFL thing. I, what, what did he What did he say in Rosillo's podcast? Well, it was just really a bunch of interesting things about his career. You know, he, I I don't want to misspeak here, but from what I remember, this was two months ago at this point. I believe he turned down ESPN like twice before they actually convinced him to move down to Bristol. He was doing some kind of radio thing or TV thing in New York that he liked. Can you imagine? Just like I, I get ESPN was it was wasn't what it was back then, but like just being like, nah, I'm good twice to ESPN. But yeah. as far as the XFL thing, it was more like he just sold it as like, yeah, this is a legitimate football league. This could be fun. I want to do it. Like it felt big time enough for him. So ESPN toying with the idea of Steve Levy, Dan Orlovsky, and Lewis Riddick, and then trying to sign Breeze for Monday Night Football after he retires. This story from the Post says that NBC and Fox have also shown strong interest in Breeze and are willing to do deals sooner rather than later. Breeze passed on entering television this past offseason and instead signed the two-year $50 million deal with the Saints, although this is expected to be his final NFL season. The article does go on to say that Breeze won't get what is known as, quote, Romo money. Close quote. Though ESPN is offering closer to the six and a half million that Gruden made during his final season on Monday Night Football, which would be nearly twice the average of what Tony Romo got in his rookie contract at CBS. How did Joe Boy, Tessitore ESPN... and Booger McFarland feel right now? <laughs> Tess probably feels bad. better. I mean, he's got a home somewhere. I I know we're not a big boxing show, but. Uh, the dude is widely considered as one of the best boxing announcers out there. I personally like him. I know he gets too excited for four-yard gains and stuff, but I mean, his voice in college football, I think that's his home, is college football. It's a little bit more theatrical than the NFL, so it fits him. I don't hate him as much as people do. I know he's a little over the top, but I think he's good. I don't hate him either. I think he's a great college announcer. It's the analyst that, well, he'll find a home too, because he had one before he went, but... I don't think his future is being an analyst on a broadcast moving forward. How do you think Jason Witten feels for all the crap he got two years ago and then when he's removed from the equation, Booger just sinks it by himself? (laughs) Maybe he's pointing the finger like, hey, it wasn't all me here, but I guess he's still in the league. So, How bad did they miss Gruden? Badly. And, and, And this reminds you that we're in copycat world, right? I mean, this is, this is what we do. Fox has had Aikman forever, former quarterback in the booth. CBS needs somebody more compelling than Phil Sims, and so they go make the run at Tony Romo, and they basically just kick Phil Sims out. And it turns out to be a very good move for CBS. And so now ESPN, who's trying to kind of recapture, I don't know, some magic in the booth on Monday Night Football, 
They're just chasing quarterbacks. Just chasing quarterbacks. See if they land one. Coming up this Friday on Good Friday, Super Talk Mississippi wants to invite you and your family to take part in A Day of Hope. You'll hear messages from our top spiritual leaders in the state of Mississippi, government officials, and good stories that are happening in cities and communities all across the state. And at noon, Speaker of the House Philip Gunn will lead us in a statewide prayer. You can join us for A Day of Hope, 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. here on Super Talk Mississippi this coming Good Friday, just three days away. Richard Cross, Michael Borky, Brian Haydad, and Brian Scott Rippey with you on this Tuesday afternoon. Thanks for being with us. Thanks for being along for the ride. How about multiple mock drafts out there that now have the Miami Dolphins taking Justin Herbert over to Atanga Bailoa, and now this. ESPN's Mel Kuyper, Mel Kuyper Jr., saying that the Dolphins may choose Herbert over Tua. He says, I'm telling you, the opportunity for the Patriots to go get Tua is there. Is this a smokescreen from Miami, or is this real? I think a better smokescreen from Miami would be, we're all in on Tua. That's who we're going to draft and see if somebody will trade up to get him. Uh, because, yeah, I agree with that. Uh, I mean, if you're Miami right now, as good of a quarterback and as talented of a quarterback as Tua is, there is a health concern. Maybe he's Drew Brees and never really gets hurt again and has a career where he throws for a billion yards, but there's at least some doubt. And if you are, in fact, not sure about Herbert or Tua, if you're Miami... Aren't you just opening, I mean, seeking trade offers? You already have, what, 11 picks? I think it's more than that. 14 picks in this year's draft, three of them in the first round. You can now suddenly build a very talented and very cheap roster. You've got a quarterback that's not going to screw it up. He's not going to win you a Super Bowl, but he's not going to screw it up. And if you're not sure about what you're going to do at that spot to a Herbert, I don't know, I'm not really sold on either guy, hey, New England, Give me a couple more picks, and I'll trade back with you, and I'll draft another person to build what is already a pretty talented roster with my 14 draft picks on top of that. If I'm Miami and I'm not sold, sell me something. How do you look at Tua and Herbert when they're both healthy and right and want to take Herbert? I have no idea. That's a good question, but... Uh, I, the other thing I would say is, if I'm Miami, I would because love to trade Herbert this looks pick. like Dan Marino. Yeah, Herbert six foot five or whatever. Yeah. I would love to trade this pick if I'm Miami. If I could be guaranteed to be in the top two or three next year, or if I could somehow find a, a terrible team that two is not going to improve that much, because why not just go give it another year and then go get Trevor Lawrence if you could somehow pull that off. Because you know, the problem like, is they hired too good of a coach. They were the first active NFL team to just say, hey, yeah, we're tanking, and they hired a coach that still managed to win five games. Like, their plan yeah. didn't technically work. Yeah, that's what I'm saying, though. They need to they need to trade this pick to a team that doesn't have that, that, that luxury. Can they trade them to Washington or Detroit and just say, okay, here, you, got, you can have our pick. And then next year, oh, lucky us, it's number one. Is there a Mike Ditka out there to help? 
the Miami Dolphins. Behind Miami, I mean, would Carolina consider an offer? Probably not. I mean, they've got Bridgewater for three years, but... I mean, you're looking at Vegas at 12 maybe would be a trade candidate. Uh, How cool is that that you just said we're looking at Vegas and that's an NFL (laughs) team? So much better. Uh, I mean, Miami's got 18 themselves, but there are some – Minnesota could want to trade up. New England could want to trade up. You've got some suitors back there that may want a quarterback. I mean, Green Bay, life after Aaron Rodgers, they're probably not trading up, but you could at least field an offer. If you're not sure – Trade back. Why are you not convinced that two is the guy? It's not me being convinced or not. No, no, it's the no, fact I, that I, 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 it was a collective you. If you're Miami, why not Tua? It's got to be injuries. They may not be comfortable. I mean, like you said yesterday, never played a full season. Not well, done. Not allowed to turn my argument back on me. Oh, I'm not turning it back on you. It's just it's a valid point. He's extremely talented, and I mean, ask the Miami Dolphins about not signing a very talented quarterback because of an injury history and how that worked out for them. So it's entirely possible that Tua's a great pro and he's talented enough to do it. Hype be damned, but maybe that's their hesitation. As, I mean, Herbert's played seasons. Herbert could have been a top 10 pick last year, came back, and even though he threw interceptions in key moments last year, which is his M.O., he played the full season. Hey, this is so cool. We're, uh, we're streaming on Periscope now. So when you open the Twitter app on your phone there at the top, we're one of those video streams. It's a work in progress. This is not to slight Rippy and Hey Dad. Yeah, it we is. We got the, uh, the two feeds up. Maybe it is. Maybe it is. But we need to make them at least feel wanted. Get it eventually to the uh, to the quad box. This is awesome. You can follow us at Sports Talk M I S S on Twitter. More coming up. Five o'clock hour next. You've heard of Name That Tune. We're going to play Name That Coach here in just a minute. Good to be with you. Sports Talk Mississippi streaming at supertalk.fm. Rolling into the 5 o'clock hour on this Tuesday. Richard Cross, Michael Borky, Brian Haydad, and Brian Scott Rippey. The C Spire text line is open 601-879-4395. 601-879-4395. At C Spire, they're not just saying they care. They're taking action to show it through COVID-19 and every day from free wireless data for educational websites to connecting businesses with the tools to work from home. Learn more at cspire.com slash cspirecares just after 5 o'clock. And so that means it is time for the College Football Fix. College Football Fix is driven by Ford and your local Mississippi Ford dealers. Log on to buyfordnow.com and find out why the best-selling trucks are built Ford Tough. Test drive an F-150. It's the best-selling truck in America for 43 straight years. And don't forget, while you've got a lot on your plate, don't worry about car repairs. Let the service professionals at your local Mississippi Ford dealer handle that for you. Some of your local Ford dealers even have complimentary pickup and drop-off service available in this difficult time. All right, here we go. Name that coach. Here's the quote. It's putting so many receivers on one side of the ball, going as fast as you can. That kind of trick and uh, and deception 
Is that a good look? So there's your argument. Okay, don't lie on the ground and fake an injury. Okay, well, don't do this BS. It's not football. That's trick them. Are we trying to trick people or fundamentally trying to teach them how to play the game? Who said it? There is... Oh, go ahead. Hey, Dad, who said it? There is zero doubt in my mind that Nick Saban said that. I really wish I could actually read verbatim the rest of the quote. Yeah. (laughs) It's the second half of the quote we haven't gotten to yet. That is the clear giveaway to me that this is Nick Saban. Okay. All the trickum... Can you say that? No. If it's hyphenated in the article, we probably shouldn't say it on the radio. I'm trying to decide how even you would... (laughs) Trick them and Richard them. There you go. All the trick them, Richard them BS. Is that what we want it to look like? We want to win because we trick you? Are we going to beat you because we're physical? We're tough. We outrun you. Got great talent. Make a great catch. Whatever it is. The game is great, but let's face it. A lot of this college football stuff in certain leagues is a joke. It's a joke. We're going to score because we trick you better than others? I personally don't want to spend my time tricking people. Again, deception is deception. Setting things up and trick plays, that's a fun part of the game, too. I'm talking about straight tempo, trick them, four guys on the side, end over, tackle eligible, all this stuff. All right, then let's get rid of all of that. Now, my only question, Borky, is it says, all right. Is that a trick by the writer? Knowing that if it had said, I, it would have been a dead giveaway? <laughs> the transcription software just got that one right, I guess. Yeah. That is, in my mind, 100%. You cannot convince me otherwise. The art, the author could send me the videotaped interview, and I would still believe that it was Nick Saban. Let's pretend for a second it's not Nick Saban, okay? Maybe it is, maybe it isn't. It most likely is. Certainly feels like if the shoe fits, wear it. What other coaches could it be? What other coaches would offer... That quote, would it have to be a Nick Saban disciple? Jim Harbaugh might offer it. I thought about Harbaugh. Kirby, maybe? Kirby would would be a, a, a good – Will Muschamp. Well, Kirby tries his hardest to mock Nick Saban in any way he can, so yeah. Muschamp is a Saban guy, but Saban, if, if Muschamp said that, I wouldn't be totally surprised. Herm Edwards. To me, the, the, the phrase Richardum. Like we're going to try your connection again, Rippy. I think it's kind of dropping when it shouldn't be. That's just how he usually sounds. I distort his voice for the regular show. I forgot to do it that time. That's all. All right. You, you, you figured out that what, what word it is that we're talking to that I don't think we're allowed to say on the radio. So we're calling it Richardum. And that's Richard apostrophe E-M. That's an old school football coach phrase. 
I don't think that's a uh, like a, you're under 40 years old as a football coach, you use that phrase. Agreed? Yeah. No, yeah. I agree with that. That, that, that that's, that's old no, no, right there. No, no coach... This is about to be double negative, negative territory. If you did not wear spandex coaching shorts that had two buttons on them with the big belt loops at some point in your life, like modified baseball shorts as coaching shorts, then you've not used that phrase. But if at one point in your life you wore those particular coaching shorts that we're talking about, you've absolutely 100% used that term. I think. Who else could it be, hey, Dad? I mean, it's a short list. Uh, like I said, Harbaugh would be on that list for me. Um, Urban Meyer would have been if where he's still a, still a coach, but Urban Meyer runs relatively, I mean, he's relatively innovative offensively, so I don't know if that's a good example. Uh, Frank Solich? I mean, I don't know. I mean, oh! <laughs> I mean, those, are, those are the guys I'm thinking of. Um, if Barry Alvarez was still coaching? Yes. Paul, that's Paul, that, yeah. Hey, could this be Paul Christ? Uh, no. I don't, I don't, no, I don't think so. The problem, the problem with my my line of thinking, however, is quite simple. It's Nick Saban. Okay, <laughs> Kirk Ferentz, maybe. That Ferentz would be a good choice. Yes, yes. But it's Nick Saban. It, it's it's Nick Saban. There's no question in anybody's mind. David, it could be David Shaw. David Shaw's picture is actually at the uh, top of the story. Yeah. In fact, the uh, the caption underneath the story is Stanford coach David Shaw is an outspoken critic of faking injuries, calling it cheating that has no place yeah. in the game. We're sort of burying the lead a little bit here. Like that that quote is is about like trick plays and stuff, but the article itself was about they're trying to fix defensive players taking a dive whenever offenses get cranked up. Or or when you're, you know, missing a timeout or something. You don't want to burn a timeout. Yeah, how do you legislate against that? Because sometimes it's just so obvious, maybe, I mean, what do you do, review it? Because sometimes officials don't see it. But you, what could, if, make it a, you could make it a review. If, if a player is getting taken off the field, you got the clock stopped anyway, right? You're taking a minute to see if they're okay. Give it a review. And if, if you can review that play and you see pretty clearly, and it's going to have to be a judgment call is the problem. You know, Or you just tell them, like, okay, he can come out, but he's out for the rest of the quarter. Or until a change of possession. Yeah, something something simple like that it would be would be how that would have to work. But and then the the counter would be what happens if a guy gets a cramp? I mean, you can get a cramp and then run to the sideline real quick. A cramp is something. A, a cramp is something that's noticeable. Yeah, you're going to notice somebody cramps. There are so many times where a guy will get a signal from the sideline and just drop to the ground, and you can see that clearly on video. Yeah. All right. Let me read this segment of the article to you. Steve Shaw, who's now the national coordinator of officials, showed a video at a um, it was a, a coaches, administrators, and players meeting in February at the NCAA headquarters in Indianapolis. At some point in the afternoon, showed a video to the committee's twelve voting and three non-voting members. 
first clip featured a game from last season. At the top of the screen, three receivers are bunched in a trips formation, but only two players are in position to defend. Frazzled coaches then mistakenly send a 12th man onto the field to make up the difference. But by the time they realize it, a defender starts running toward the sideline. It's too late. The offense is already in position to snap the football, which would trigger a five-yard penalty. Instead, the middle linebacker suddenly drops to the turf in a blatant attempt to force an injury timeout. To make matters worse, a cornerback on the near side of the field starts to do the same thing, sees the middle linebacker at the last second, scrambles up, loses balance, and nearly falls over before steadying himself. Larry, Moe, and Curly would have been jealous. That. It's blatant, and it's in almost every game you watch. What can you do about it? Let's continue to talk about that. Is it a big deal? Is there anything you can do about it? Sports Talk Mississippi, streaming at supertalk.fm. It's your college football fix driven by Ford. you on Sports Talk Mississippi, streaming at supertalk.fm. Thanks for being with us on this Tuesday afternoon. So a continuation of the college football fix driven by Ford. Faking injuries in college football to slow offenses down because you don't have it figured out defensively because offenses get into a rhythm. They hit two or three big plays in a row or two or three first downs in a row. Boom, a player's going down. Bank it. You've seen it. You've watched it. You've watched it in person. You watched it on television. It just happens in almost every game you watch. So what do you do about it? How do you prove it, right? I mean, we can all watch it with our own eyes. He's faking. There was nothing wrong with him. I was watching him. The play was, and then he just fell down. Guys have cramps all the time. Trainer comes out. What do they do with him? He does a little fake slow walk over the sideline. They put him in the trainer's tent for two minutes, pop it down, and get him back out. How do you penalize that? How do you prove it? See, the the proof aspect is going to get into some difficult things, right? I mean, you you are dealing with college kids, and if they can claim that, well, he – hit the ground because he had a cramp and you're telling him he's faking it and you calling my player a liar and you're going to get into all that minutia that they just they don't want to get into because you're going to deal with that all the time and you know how rational football coaches are sometimes so they'll certainly take that well I think what you have to do is just put a blanket ruling in to where if there's an injury timeout and you have to leave the we have to stop the game to get you to leave the field you have to be out for a certain amount of time whether it be change of possession or, or what, I think that's the only way you can do it where everybody would get on board. Because even though it is clear and obvious all the time when it happens, I mean, clear as day, you have guys looking at the sideline for a signal, and when they get it, they'll hit the deck. That happens. Yeah. But the first time a kid hits the deck and they claim cramp or whatever, it'll just be a mess that they don't want to take on. So you've got to do something 
blanket uh, to avoid anything like that. You make and you can you can put it under the guise of player safety. New player safety rule: any player who has to leave the field with an injury has to stay off the field for however long. Make it a real yeah, time, a time thing. period yeah. or a certain number of plays. I, I don't know what it is. I don't know that answer, but you can you can certainly wrap it up like that. Because then, what, what are the coaches going to say? What are the coaches going to say to you? Like, well, we don't want to do this. Oh, you're not for player safety. Because if you actually have a minor injury, you could probably get yourself off the field. Right. Yeah. If you, you take a little a, a shot and you know you got a bruise, you can get off the field. Did you say change of possession, Rippy? You've got to stay out until the next change of possession. If you leave, yeah, the field I think because that would injury? make sense because that's enough yeah. of a of a penalty to where it would probably de incentive like like I don't think and, it would. Yeah, I think it would deter people from doing that. And nobody is doing this when it's second and fourteen from your you know the opponent's sixteen yard line. They're doing this when you're driving, and you know so chances are the change of possession isn't going to be very long anyway. Also, if you're kicking dudes out of games for targeting a lot of the times where I would say most of the time it's not intentional, I don't really feel bad for you if you get caught doing this. I am certain that, well, I mean, I'm thinking back to the Egg Bowl, and hey, Dad, I remember specifically a couple of times in that game where Mississippi State had players that do that. Or did that in that particular game. I'm not saying Ole Miss didn't, but this isn't about any specific team. I mean, David Shaw is the guy that's most frustrated about this. There's a story in here about, or an anecdote in here about Tosh Lupoy being suspended for a game because he was instructing players to do it when he was on Jeff Tedford's staff at Cal. I'm not saying that Ole Miss is immune to this. I just remember specifically two or three times where that happened during the Egg Bowl, and it was. I mean, just as clear as day. There was a bad one. Trying to slow an offense uh, down. There was a bad one in the uh, Georgia-Notre Dame game this past year. Like, there was one. I mean, the announcers were just like, oh, come on. Oh, yeah, where the Georgia player went down because Notre Dame had some Notre Dame was driving there at the end, and so they they hit the ground. Yeah. I mean, there's a million examples of these. So, just, you got to do something. Because I agree. Man, I'm not normally one to agree with David Shaw. I'm not a big fan of his, but uh, he's right. This is—it's embarrassing. It's embarrassing that that you're having people. Fa- we put—they put so much emphasis on player safety, but they're also telling them to fake injuries out there. So you got you got to find a way to punish it. And the same coaches that have players faking injuries will probably at some point go on an off-season rant about how soft we've gotten as a society. Exactly. What's your beef with David Shaw? Hey, Dad. Uh, he he made a comment a few years ago about how I'll find it. I know exactly what you're talking about. About how how they don't recruit in the South because how many kids could actually get into Stanford? It's just while ignoring that, 25 percent of the student population at Stanford comes from the South region, as uh, dictated by the university. So it was yeah. uh, here. I found it in 2016. Uh, the article's taking a while to pull up. He said, I'm great with whatever college football says, talking about this was the satellite camp era where Michigan was coming here to Mississippi to do satellite camps and stuff like that. He said, I'm great with whatever college football says because it doesn't affect us. It doesn't make sense for us to go hold a camp 
someplace where there might be one person in the entire state that's eligible to get into Stanford. Again, one-fourth of his school in California comes from the South. That sounds like, though, more that he's frustrated with the standards that he's dealing with than people from the South are dumb. Yeah, but that's what he says. Look at what he says. Sunday starter this year. Football and baseball is a little bit different. Yeah, but still. Look at Mississippi State's starting quarterback this coming fall. A guy who comes from Stanford because he couldn't stay out there because he couldn't get into grad school. So committee members at this meeting wondered ultimately what can we do, and two things became clear. Number one, officials would never be asked to determine the validity of an injury. Not only would it put them in an impossible position, it would run contrary to basic player safety guidelines. That's the first thing. And the second thing is coaches would ultimately shoulder the responsibility since players take their cues from them. Here's another quote from David Shaw, since we're quoting David Shaw. I'll say this as directly as possible. This is on the coaches. This is not on the players. This is on coaching integrity, and don't let anyone tell you anything different. This is not just trying to win games. It has to do with integrity. It's hard to legislate integrity. And then, uh, Rippy, we get to what you were saying a second ago. The answer, it turns out, is simple. Tie it to playing time since the most valuable, it's the most valuable commodity to both players and coaches. They compare it to targeting, which was seen as an existential threat to the game not long ago. Then came the penalty that caused an offending player to miss either the remainder of the game or the entire first half of the following game. And while vicious hits continue to happen, they happen not nearly as frequently as before the new rule went into effect. So they get into the question of what would be appropriate to deter bad actors. Two plays, four plays, ten plays. Some people said a possession, according to Steve Shaw. Some went as far as a quarter. And so the Rules Committee decided there was no magic bullet. And what did they do? They tabled the legislation. Exactly. They opted for a direct warning to coaches. Either you deal with this now or we'll have to do something. Well, good luck. Also, Rippy, just let me have these people I don't like. Why do I got to explain everything? Mostly just picking your brain. It's just like every time I was like, I don't like that guy. Why don't you like that guy? I just don't. I don't like his face. Could you drop a flag for a dive? Even though it's never called, but you still have that in the NBA. You've got to, It's a technical for yeah. diving. You get you get a, you can get a yellow card in uh in soccer for diving. So just drop a fifteen yarder. But and, and in yeah, that, that case, goes back to and what, in that case, but that goes to what they're making a, a judgment ago, call, though, where you're putting the officials in an impossible situation. Well, but what we just said though, they they are not in an impossible situation in uh in soccer and basketball. They they've put the, the they've put that responsibility on them. Make the judgment call. And they rarely right, hey, call Dan, it, which makes it if, easier to implement. I know, I know, I know, Richard, I know. If they don't discipline people, how close are we to like Mike Gundy having someone from the EPL come in and show them how to do it? Seriously, start diving everywhere. Let uh, What's the star guy, uh, Ronald, Ronaldo, didn't he, isn't he bad about this? Let him go roll around on the ground for a while. Fall camp. Hey, Dad, the only thing I was going to say a second ago is you're so critical of officials, and yet you're saying, yeah, let's put this on them too? 
to let's give just see you where it goes, right? To be critical hey, of them? let's just see where it goes. How bad can it get? Can't be any worse, can it? Let's find out. Yeah, you're beating that drum today. Let's fast. Forward. I want to come back in the fall and be like, "Did you see this?" Sports Talk Mississippi. We'll take a quick timeout. All right. So if we get NFL training camp started on time, if the summer rolling into the fall looks like it has in previous years, then Hard Knocks has got a supersized plan coming your way. Instead of one team, it will be two. Hard Knocks planning to supersize and feature two teams in the same summer, the Los Angeles Rams and the Los Angeles Chargers, if there are training camps. No announcement is planned for this week as the NFL and NFL Films are focused on the first virtual draft in league history because of coronavirus. But NFL Films, which produces the show in conjunction with HBO, would be excited to have not one but two teams volunteer for Hard Knocks, and it would, in the words of one source, quote, be special to figure out the creative for a supersized series this summer. So tell me what that looks like. Is that bouncing back and forth between the two teams within the same episode? Or is this two standalone productions that gives us double the number of shows that we could watch on HBO? Well, if they do it like they did last year, it's not going to be interesting at all. That was the worst season of Hard Knocks we've had. Because they didn't cover anything that actually happened. And that's been what's so good about that show is it felt like a reality show that was actually real. I mean, they showed players getting cut. And they did it in such a brilliant way. It's like they knew certain players were going to get cut. And, like, you you followed them through every episode. And, and you like, Devin Kajust, who was a tight end for the Browns. Like, you really came to like this guy. And you met his family. And it's just, you're, you're rooting for him and you're rooting for him. And then, boom, he gets cut. And it just, it rips your heart out. It, it was real. And there was real access and they ignored the Antonio Brown saga completely. I mean, completely ignored it. Outside of like little anecdotes here and there, it just it was terribly done. You, you watch that show for the inside access, and then the only thing you cared about with the Oakland Raiders at the time was what the heck's Antonio Brown doing? And they didn't even touch it. So if they do it that way again this year, it's not going to be worth watching two teams or ten teams. Doesn't matter. I disagree there. I kind of found it compelling. I would imagine one of the hangups with the Brown thing is that he wasn't at the facility for a lot of it. Like, because you did see, like, had cameras with that. him in Florida. Yeah, but you did see that, that, like, kind of impromptu press conference Mayock did with the media where he was just like, hey, this is the deal with Antonio Brown. Just like at a certain point, I imagine there's some stuff the team doesn't want out there. But as far as this one, if you've read that Seth Wickersham piece on the stadium and the problems they're having with the two teams in L.A., you could put cameras on these two front offices and make a reality TV show because they don't really like one another. Hmm. Yeah, I read that article, and you're right. That would be the more intriguing. Com- you know, these two these two franchises trying to do a Sell trying to get along tickets. in the same city. Yeah. Hmm. But if you're the Chargers, aren't you? I mean, do you want this? I mean, my God, you 
you are second fiddle in the city in football, but in reality, I mean, you're, what, fourth? Because it's the Lakers, and then probably the Rams, and then the Dodgers, and then you. Oh, I'll put the Dodgers ahead of the Rams. Uh, Fair enough. So you have Lakers, Dodgers, Rams, and, and then you. And now you're not even getting your own hard knocks. Like, you've got to share that with the Rams, too. Weren't they second fiddle to the second fiddle team, soccer team, in their own stadium? Isn't that where LAFC played? They have their own. It's the LA Galaxy that has that stadium. So the StubHub Center was the LA Galaxy stadium? That's right, yeah. Okay. Yeah. And they couldn't fill it up. I mean, even when other other teams' fans would take uh, okay, over the so, place, they still couldn't fill it up. And, I mean, so, all of that, and you're not getting your own hard knocks. So pecking order in Los Angeles, Lakers are a clear number one. Dodgers, hey, Dad, clear number two? I would say so. And there was a time not too terribly long ago where Southern Cal was a clear number three. Probably not the case right now. I mean, the the Clay Helton edition of USC is not compelling enough to trump two NFL teams, is it? I would still venture to guess that they'd be ahead of the Chargers. I mean, it's hard to fathom how unpopular they are there. I know it's a huge market, but... It's also hard to gauge, though, because it's not like San Diego is far off. Generally, some of the same market... Where are the Clippers in this? I mean, there's a chance the Clippers were going to win it all this year. I mean, now is it third? If they win, if we do get basketball back and they do end up winning whatever the finals looks like, then yeah, you'd make an argument for that. Weirdest the thing to also remember is six feet apart and there's only twelve of them there. <laughs> the thing to remember this is not only are these teams where we're ranking these teams, but the gap between, I mean, there's a big gap between Lakers and Dodgers, and then there's a, it's hard to state how big the canyon is between the Dodgers and whoever you want to put in third. It's just, it's just massive. I got a texter on the ceasefire text line that says the Galaxy is ahead of them also. That can't be true. Uh, see, I, I'm not in, in any market, even the ones where it's popular, uh, buying. MLS over NFL. Like, even in Not Atlanta. Locally, though. What, Name brand. Would you really argue with that? The Galaxy have been there for a while. They were the first soccer team there. It's a community that seems to like soccer. I'm just talking locally in L.A. people, not TV, not because you're the NFL. Those two teams, in terms of what fans want to be, would you really not consider the Galaxy maybe more popular than the Chargers? It's like this weird team that no one wanted. Everyone there is either a Rams or a Raiders fan. Yeah, I mean, you said it. I'm not Borky. I think it was you. Maybe it was somebody else that said a second ago that the Clippers are third. The L.A. Rams have got to be number three, and a little bit of sustained success, and they could easily slide past the Dodgers to number two because it's the NFL. But I would agree that the Chargers are. I mean. Forgive the cliche, very much redheaded stepchild in Los Angeles. 
But but how does this work though? Because you just had the Ram three years ago. It was Goff's rookie year. Jeff Fisher got fired. They were the Hard Knocks team. Let's pull this back to the southeast. I, I know we're talking about Los Angeles and, and talking about the Hard Knocks deal, but the Atlanta United or Atlanta United is wildly popular from an attendance standpoint in Atlanta, right? They started out playing their games at Bobby Dodd Stadium and they were selling them out. They moved them to Mercedes-Benz Stadium, have had the upper deck open, complete sellouts a couple of times, have closed off the... I mean, just an unbelievable atmosphere and people are really jazzed up about them, that franchise. But in Atlanta, it's Falcons 1, I would think, because of the NFL and just the overall popularity of football. And then Braves 2. What's 3? Is it the Atlanta Hawks or the Georgia Bulldogs? It is the Georgia Bulldogs. I would put the Georgia might be ahead of the Braves. Mm, I don't know. Wouldn't I mean I think you Atlanta them ahead of the Falcons before the Braves could you not? If you if you talk to people in Atlanta there's not a, exactly as huge, strong Falcons fan base that's wide-ranging. I think it's just that Atlanta fans in general are willing to be dismissive of the Falcons. When the Falcons had it rolling a couple of years ago, that was a tough ticket. And that city was crazy for the Falcons in the NFL. Next time I talk to Chuck Oliver, I'll ask Chuck that. I'll say, hey, Sports in Atlanta, rank it. Is it Falcons 1, Braves 2, Georgia 3, Hawks 4, Atlanta United 5? Are we short-selling Atlanta United? Are we short-selling Georgia? Are we overselling the Falcons? I, I don't know the answer to that. I really don't. Our good friend Scott in Clinton has got a... Um, He's got a pretty good pulse on the uh, the city of Atlanta. His dad is the radio play-by-play announcer for the Atlanta Hawks. I, I don't know if Scott's listening this afternoon or happens to be out and about right now, but I would trust his opinion on that. Next time Scott texts in, we'll ask him to uh, ask him to rank those.
Super Talk Mississippi media production.